Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. going to require a lot of you tonight, by the way. We're going to do a very deep dive into this particular passage from 1 Kings 19. We're going to learn a little Hebrew. It's going to get zany, but stick with me because I think there's a lot of good gifts from this passage for all of us. I want to speak tonight about the voice of God and how to hear the voice of God, how to, in, how to be helped by the voice of God. Uh, because in this passage, in 1 Kings 19, the voice of God engages with Elijah in such a way that it changes not only his future, but the future of a whole country. And I, I want to speak just in a normal way, person-to-person way, about voices that are in our lives that are so powerful, they actually change the trajectory of the future. That uh, the, the future ain't what it used to be, so to speak, because of these voices that enter in and change our courses. Now, there are famous people that have done this for us and, and non-famous people that have done this for us. In, in history, just in recent history, you think of people like Martin Luther King Jr., who painted a portrait for the whole world in an impromptu speech that we know as the I Have a Dream speech. And you remember the beautiful portrait that he gave of his hoped-for future in which uh, black children and white children would one day play together without any stigmas, and that actually began to happen, not perfectly yet, but it began to happen where people are able to overcome those boundaries that were so well established in the past because of that vision that he laid out, that glorious kingdom-oriented vision of the future. The same thing could be said of uh, Nicholas Tesla in 1926. He, um, he was laughed at constantly and made the object of scorn by his uh, intelligent uh, uh, contemporaries, but he said that one day we would be able to transmit via um, wireless technology things like um, telephone signals and documents and music and pictures all around the world. He was laughed at, but he was right. His wisdom in some ways uh, created the future that we, uh, or the present that we currently inhabit. Uh, And of course, this has happened to you personally. Somebody in your life came along at the right moment and gave you a word, I hope a positive one that has shaped your life and continues to shape, will shape your future in a positive and life-giving direction. Some of you have had the opposite experience of that. Somebody said something negative over you that has completely shaped your imagination. You're still reacting to it to this day. It was funny. I ran into a a young uh, friend the other day um, who had, in fact, uh, became a priest. He was uh, in a crowd with a collar on, so it was kind of a dead giveaway. And I said, well, how did that happen? He said, well, don't you remember? You told me 12 years ago that I should consider going into ministry. And before I could, like, rein in what I was about to say, I said, I did? Um, Evidently, I didn't think much of it at the time, but he did, uh, for better or worse. And I think for better, because he's a decent chap. But but sometimes powerful voices at the right time can create for us a particular future, hopefully a vibrant future. Well, that's certainly true in 1 Kings 19, where Elijah hears a voice and that changes his country. So I want to talk about a powerful voice and a vibrant future this evening. 
Now, the context of our passage is important. I'll just summarize it briefly. Uh, we've been in this sermon series regarding the life of Elijah for a while now, but in the immediate context, Elijah, after a very serious a series of miracles in his ministry and power demonstrations uh, via God's miraculous energy in the world, he ran into a situation where there was a death warrant on him uh, from Queen Jezebel. And because of that, he sort of loses his edge, loses his nerve, collapses in the desert, and really wants to die. But in the midst of that depression and in the midst of that burnout, God meets him and gives him food and gives him rest and says, after that food and after that rest, I want you to go to Mount Horeb and wait. So Elijah, now newly energized, goes to Mount Horeb and wait. That's where we are in our passage. Now, regarding the structure of our passage, it's kind of fascinating. There's a lot of repetition in it. Elijah hides in a cave. God beckons him out, speaks to him. Uh, Elijah replies to God's speech. Uh, and then Elijah um, uh, hears God speak again, the exact same words, and Elijah responds in the exact same way. And then at the end, God gives him a vision for the future. That's sort of a unique structure in our passage, and I can't deal with all of it tonight, but I do want to deal with the powerful voice of God as it's revealed in uh, verses 11 through 12. So that's the part of the passage we're going to be looking at, so I encourage you to open your bulletins and let's dig into this material tonight. We'll begin at verse 11. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. In order to really appreciate this passage, we need to remember, and if you don't know your Old Testament, that's fine, I'll, I'll summarize it, we need to remember that this story is a near repetition of a much older story, a much older event that happened to Moses in Exodus chapter 33. Lots of similarities. For example, the setting. This is Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is one name of two names for the same place. The other name for this place, Mount Sinai, the place where God gave the law to Moses and Israel. Also, we see a repetition of the same divine motion, if you will. You may remember in Exodus 33, uh, Moses wants to see God. God says, no, because you can't look upon my face and live, says God. But God passed by a crevice in the rock, and Moses was able to see the afterglow of God. And here, God passes by the cave. Moses hides his face from God in the cleft of the rock, and here, Elijah hides his face by wrapping his mantle around his, his eyes, right? presumably so that he wouldn't see. And then in Exodus 33, the voice of God addresses Moses, and in 1 Kings 19, the voice of God addresses Elijah. And so this text is built on and reflective of uh, a much older text in the Old Testament. However, there is a substantial translation challenge in this passage, and it has to do with the words, still, small 
voice. It is translated in a variety of ways uh, in different Bibles. It could be thin silence, gentle whisper, a low murmur, etc. But the Hebrew words are notoriously complex. The Hebrew words traditionally translated still small voice are qual, demama, deka. So we're going to say that together. Qual, demama, deka. Good, you're all Hebrew scholars. Now, now I'm going to break this down a little bit for you, okay? So qual is voice. It means voice. Then there's damama, which has a Ugaritic uh, background, but damama. It means still or motionless. However, depending upon the context, it can also mean to roar, to wail loudly, or to thunder loudly. You see where I'm going with this? Complicated. And then there's deka. So it's qual damama deka. Deka in Hebrew means small, uh, very often. It can be translated fine, like salt or powder is fine, but it can also refer, deka can refer, to the method of making something small or fine. Deka can mean to pulverize or to crush. I think you know where I'm going with this. Here's the problem with this passage. This phrase could be translated still, small, voice, or it could mean exactly the opposite. It could mean the voice of a pulverizing thunder. So in other words, this passage that we often attribute to God's subtlety might in fact mean God's ability to shock and awe. God is not getting quieter in this passage. He's getting much, much louder. He's not in the wind. He's not in the quake. He's not in the fire. He is in a voice that overcomes all of them and is much more pronounced and loud. So the question that ought to be asked is, do we know which translation is preferable? Still small voice or voice of a pulverizing thunder? Well, context may uh, help suggest which reading is better. A few things about context. First, as I said earlier, 1 Kings 19 is a, a, a mirror repetition of what we find earlier in Exodus 33 with, where Moses is at Sinai. They're at the same location. God passes by both of them. And both of them include similar and odd phenomenon that precede God's bellowing voice. So at Mount Sinai, when Moses is about to get the law, there is smoke that appears from the mountain, then fire appears, then trumpets sound, and then the thundering voice of God from the mountain. And whenever Elijah hears God's voice, still small voice or voice of a pulverizing thunder, he knows it's God because he wraps his face in his shroud and comes out of the cave in order to encounter that God. So whatever he hears, he knows it's God because he also knows the Old Testament and he knows the phenomenological language and experience of Moses that preceded the voice of God. So he's encountering the voice and he knows he is. Second bit of context, the audible voice of God is never subtle in the Old Testament, like never. This is why Psalm 29 Uh, which is all about the voice of God, underscores the shock and awe quality of God's voice. 
Verse 29, we read it tonight. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. That's Kol Yahweh, voice of the Lord. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. God's voice is many things, but subtle it ain't. Additionally, God's many activities throughout the life of Elijah are never subtle. They're always bold and miraculous, whether it's fire from heaven or rain from heaven after three years of drought or raising the dead back to life. God is not acting subtly in the life of Elijah, and therefore some would argue he's not speaking subtly either. Lastly, some might ask, well, if God is addressing people in, or addressing Elijah in a still and small way, how does that make sense of the fact that God's voice is neither silent nor subtle in this whole passage? He speaks directly, boldly, and repeatedly to Elijah. In fact, the bulk of our reading tonight comes from God's voice. God is the one who's doing all the speaking, or at least much of the speaking in this passage. Verse 9, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 11, God says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Verse 13, suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Repeating that same refrain. And then verse 15, all the way to 18, then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, etc. And so I think there is at least a strong case to be made that this text ought to be translated the voice of a pulverizing thunder because it keeps with the Old Testament motif of God's voice and also makes sense of the context here. And you may think, Ethan, this may be a little bit of a stretch, buddy. Um, is this some of your Gnostic wisdom that is coming out to impress us? Um, no, in fact. Uh, there's a book. There's a book called The Basics of Biblical Hebrew. If you are taking a course on biblical Hebrew at an undergraduate or graduate level, this is just the text that everybody is given all the time. It's the standard text, and it actually has a reflection upon this very passage. And Jeffrey Niehaus, who's an Old Testament scholar, writes these words about it. Either translation, still small voice, or voice of a pulverizing thunder, uh, is possible. But genre considerations make the voice of a pulverizing thunder preferable. After all, God's voice always sounds thunderous in a storm theophany. We read that Elijah encountered the wind, earthquake, and fire, but that Yahweh was not yet in any of these. They simply announced his coming. Now, why is this important? And why am I spending so much of the sermon talking about intricacies of the Hebrew language? What point am I making? Well, you have to wait for that because it's coming at the end of the sermon. So, you know, hold on to it. Uh, but for now, but for now, we know that Elijah hears from God again and again in this passage. And it's a powerful voice that eventually creates a new future for Elijah and his country. So this is point two of the sermon, the future. God speaks to Elijah about the future. Why does he do this? Because of Elijah's uh, doubled up complaint. This is in verse 10. Please follow along. Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. In other words, Elijah on Mount Sinai thought he was reading, uh, or really writing the last page of his autobiography. He is saying, 
this is my end, and not my end only. This is the end of our whole country because there's nobody left. I'm the last gasp of wisdom and orthodoxy in this land. Everything is collapsing around us. All of the places we used to worship are destroyed. All of the people that used to speak about you are dead. There's nobody left but me, and now they want to kill me. The end. It's the end of Israel. That's what he's predicting. Predicts it twice. And then, well, before I get there, I, I'm wondering if you've ever felt at least those emotions. That is to say, I've given everything I can give, blood, sweat, and tears, poured my life into these children, and now they're acting crazy, poured my life into a business, and now it's failing. I've done everything I can possibly do, and I'm gleaning nothing. I have nothing to show for it. So take my life, because I'm done. I'm checked out. Well, that's the place that Elijah is in. And one of the beautiful things about this passage is that God, ex nihilo, out of nothing, creates a new future for the whole country. Creates a new future. What does he do regarding the situation? What does he tell Elijah to do? He says, how about you go and anoint the next generation? Anoint some successors. There's all sorts of succession plans in this passage. He says, go anoint two new kings, one for Syria, one for Israel. Now, Israel currently had a king. His name was Ahab, and Ahab was married to a woman named Jezebel. God is essentially saying, in this anointing, you will be functionally deposing the king and queen, the emperor and empress. Their reign is about to be at an end. So he's saying, the very nightmare hellscape scenario that you're so worried about, it's about to be over. Moreover, he says, you, Elijah, will have a successor with almost your same name, Elisha. In other words, your prophetic voice will not die with you. It'll carry on to another generation. Your legacy will live into the next generation. More than that, he gives Elijah the hope of a multitude. This, there's, a, I think, maybe a thin rebuke in this, too. When Elijah said, I and I only am left, he's in kind of a pouting mood. He's a little moody, as we all are. But in verse 18, God says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, Elijah, there is a future. You can't see it now, but there is a future that is bright and redemptive, not just for you, but for the whole country. So even if you can't see a bright end at the end of this tunnel, God does. And God not only sees it, but guarantees it. You know, as Christians, we do not stare down a tunnel with no light at the end of it. Sometimes it's easy to feel that way, either broadly or personally. If you think broadly, especially about the condition of the church in the West, it's pretty easy to get depressed. After all, we're not popular anymore. Mwah. Um, we're in precipitous decline, we're losing our public respect, uh, people don't see our value, people don't see our relevance, and so you might ask yourself, where is the hope? Or even personally, where's my hope? Because the Christian life as I'm living it really isn't what I thought it would be. I thought I'd be more victorious, I, I thought I would see more personal evolution and development, uh, I, I thought that my kids wouldn't be going off the rails, I thought my marriage would be more solvent, I thought things would be easier for me, and they're not. I thought that I would be an overcomer, but I'm not. I'm sort of stuck in time, I'm a member of the Arrested Development crew, and now I just can't get out, and I, you know, I thought things would be different. And you're losing your hope. Well, 
when we hear from God regarding the kingdom of Israel, which seemed completely hopeless, I think the takeaway is something to this effect. It is quite true that you, that is you yourself, might not win. You might not win in the way that you have defined winning. But God is certain to win, and if God is certain to win, then by transitive property, those who belong to God are also certain to win as he defines winning. If God wins, ultimately you do too. And so that's something about the powerful voice, something about the future that God creates for Elijah and his nation. But now a takeaway. How does God speak to us now? How does God speak to us? I want to talk about this for a minute. Because I think many Christians, full of good intention, base their understanding of how God normatively and predictably speaks to us from this particular text, at least the traditional rendering of it. Namely, that God speaks to each of us individually in a still, small voice. Put another way, God's primary voice comes to us in the form of an inward hunch or premonition, a vague sense, or even a strong feeling. Thus, God's voice in our lives is to be understood as private and individualistic, subtle and subjective. But friends, this is simply not the biblical pattern of how God's voice is heard. Even if this text ought to be translated, still small voice, that doesn't necessarily make Elijah's one-time experience of a still small voice normative for everyone else, including us, all the time. That is to say, God has not promised us all individually that we will receive revelation from a still small voice. Nothing in this text indicates that this is a repeatable pattern. Sideline, a sidemark. Um, a little Bible wisdom here, friends. It is best not to make massive application for our own inward, personal, spiritual lives from a single biblical passage which is very, very difficult to translate. Just, just saying. Uh, but this text does beg a question. Does God still address us today? Does he speak to us today? And all Christians would say, well, absolutely. And how do we hear God's voice? Well, it's as clear as crystal. It's Christ. Christ is God's definitive voice poured into our ears. Jesus is the vocal cords of Almighty God. After all, he himself is labeled in John's Gospel the Word of God, that is, the Word who became flesh. And while this Christ uh, indeed came to us in subtlety, like a still, small voice wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. His effect, his effect, was stronger than a pulverizing thunder. The same biblical voice that shakes the cedar trees and breaks the mountains apart had shouted to us all the more grandly in Christ. This is the voice that raises the dead. This is the voice that calms the sea. This is the voice that casts out evil. By his awful death and magnificent resurrection, this word incarnate has done so much work that he's redeemed the world and overturned the, the crisis of mortality. Whatever that effect is, it ain't subtle and it ain't silent. Jesus is the voice of God shouting about what God has done to solve our universal crises of sin and death. 
God's normative voice, the way He speaks to us, is not through subtlety and emotional murmurs, but through the public words and effects of a very public Christ. So when we read of Christ, whom we call the Word of God, from the Scriptures, which we call the Word of God, uh, we are hearing the voice of God. We acknowledge as much in our worship, because immediately after the reading, the reader says, the word of the Lord, to which you all respond. When doing this, we're acknowledging that God has spoken, that God has addressed us. Thus, God's chiefest and most important revelation of himself is not private, and it's not hidden, it's public, and it's universal. Put another way, God's voice is not some lost needle in a big old haystack that we discover through endless amounts of navel-gazing and introspection. God's voice is both comfortingly and wincingly clear. When we hear Jesus and God's word about Jesus read and preached, we are hearing the voice of God regardless of the state of our innards. Now, am I saying that God never directly involves himself in our innards? in our hearts and minds, that God never addresses us personally. Of course not. God is operative all the time, addressing us all the time, through what the Reformers called the secondary means or general revelation, through nature, through history, through experience, through thoughts, through feelings. But, but, our individual hearts and minds, friends, are quite fallen, and they very easily misunderstand the messages they think they're receiving. So, whatever words come to our hearts, we hold them more loosely than we would, say, Paul's epistle to the Romans, right? They're not on the same level. Here's a tip. We should probably make a distinction between revelation and illumination. Revelation is God's objective, revealed voice that is universally true and available through Christ and his inspired word. Illumination by some contrast, is God's reverberating effect within each person, within each individual heart, giving us wisdom and insight for particularized situations. Both revelation and illumination are grand, but the authoritative, objective, solid, revelatory voice of Christ in his word is grander and more secure than what echoes in our own hearts. It is the hinge of all our hopes, because our hearts may deceive us, but the coming to us from the outside word of God regarding Christ will never deceive. It is the hinge of all our hopes. And friends, his voice speaks, and it speaks still, even now. His word is working its way into your ear canals at this very moment. God's uncompromising and daring voice declares that because of the Messiah's sacrificial passion and miraculous resurrection, you are forgiven. You are forgiven for all of it for all of the felonies, for all of the misdemeanors, forgiven and forgiven forever. God has, via the cross and resurrection, definitively spoken, and your sin has been permanently crushed by the voice of his pulverizing thunder. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not.